This episode of the Speech Science Podcast was brought to you by Presence Learning. If you're considering a career in teletherapy, you need a therapy platform built specifically to deliver therapy and assessments remotely. Exactly. Therapy Essentials, which includes the Presence Learning Therapy Platform, is so much more than your average video conferencing tool. It was designed by clinicians for clinicians specifically to deliver therapy and assessments online. The Presence Learning Platform features a content library full of games and activities sortable by age and interest to personalize your therapy and keep your clients engaged. And don't forget speech language assessments from top publishers. For more information and to start your free trial, go to PresenceLearning.com and then click on Our Platform. The views and opinions expressed during this show do not necessarily reflect the the policy policy or position of any affiliated workplace or employer. The views and opinions of the show do not constitute recommendations for therapy. Please Please contact contact a licensed SLP for individual consult on your situation. Please listen carefully. What is communication? An essential behavior of life. We have the both blessing and responsibility of trying to foster another. It's transmitting a thought from one person to another. It's the strongest way for two people to convey information to each other. The back and forth between two people. Communication is a lifeline. It's just connection with other people. Connecting people in terms of ideas or thoughts or needs. Draws us out of ourselves, draws us into that relationship, you know, builds up our families. Without it, we'd be lost. Whatever it is that we do to express intent and achieve an impact. Communication is the ability to express your needs, wants, frustrations, and desires to anyone that you feel needs to have that information. Welcome to Speech Science, episode number 158. I'm Matt Hott, a speech and language pathologist located in the Buckeye State, working in the schools and in stroke and dementia care uh, with adults, joined from the great state of Texas, Michelle Wintering, our pediatric expert. Hi, Matt. Hello. And the state to the south of the Florida-Georgia line in Florida, Rachel uh, Archambo. Hi, everyone. I was going to call you the Florida state, but then I couldn't remember if he was actually from Florida or, or not. I think he is. See? Okay, that works too. I just went with the country group. And from the home of cheese, it is Marie Severson up in Wisconsin. Hello, Marie. It's just too bad that I don't eat it anymore. But oh, no, you sad. don't? No. I gave it up. Uh, well, I got nothing there. I was going to say, I saw a video where a dude was wearing a cheese hat, and he got hit in the head, and nothing happened. Cheese exactly. head. Right? Cheese exactly. Cheese hat, yes. Sorry. Cheese hat, cheese go. head. I'm not Aaron Rodgers. I don't know. <laughs> So this conversation started in the uh, green room before we jumped on here. What is each of y'all's favorite holiday? Marie. I'll go first. Yeah. My favorite holiday is Christmas because it's, I don't know, it's the best holiday. I think you would have to make an argument against it and it'd have to be a really strong one for it to really hold. But gifts, family, hot drinks, hanging out by the fire, holiday cheer. It's just, it's the best holiday in my opinion, but um, prove me wrong, someone else. My favorite holiday is Halloween. 
closely followed by New Year's Day, I think, uh, or New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve. I think of the winter holiday area. I love New Year's Eve. Um, I like watching the ball drop. I like, you know, the shininess, the the, the meaning of it. Like we're going into this new year. I, I enjoy that. But Halloween, I don't, I don't think you can beat it with the costumes I dress up every year, every year. Michelle? I, I loved Halloween. If, if you'd asked me that, I remember I don't know, drawing a picture in probably second grade about my favorite holiday being Halloween. Um, <laughs> and I think in part because I love the fall growing up in Ohio mm-hmm. and having the really big fall colors change and my birthday's in October. So I loved um, I loved Halloween because it was around that. Um, but of course, I, I love holidays. So you're catching me with this like in general ask my husband, ask my close friends. I love celebrating holidays. I love a good reason to celebrate people, um, especially loved ones in your life. I love birthdays, all those things. Now, I will make an argument for the 4th of July has become one of my favorites. And it's not just like pro-America. It's because it's in the summer. It's often really good weather. It's an opportunity to get people together. A lot of times it's friends. You're, it's, playful and fun and there's watermelon and good food i think a lot of my favorite food is then like fresh Mm -hmm. fruit and um, barbecuing and that kind of thing Um, and then just to add to that my son's birthday is the fourth of july so it has taken extra special meaning now and that movie with tom cruise which i will not show to my son (laughs) i would not show that to your son my favorite holiday is delayed this year and down here in Cincinnati, opening day for baseball season is always a holiday. We have a big old parade. Schools let kids out early. There's a parade on TV. I guess it's the same parade, but like it's a big to do and there is no opening day season this year. So my holidays sucks. <laughs> That's a bummer. Are there any holidays that you don't celebrate? Are there ones that you say, eh, I don't want to celebrate this one or maybe you celebrate it on a different day? Um, no, the one I hate celebrating though is New Year's. <laughs> so, no, okay, uh, I heard your reason of why you liked New Year's, but for me, I feel like New Year's, and maybe it's just because of the way my wife and I celebrate it, we stay up till about 1208, 1215, and then we go to bed. Mm-hmm. So, like, I could be out with my friends on any other random Friday, but New Year's, it I don't know. Maybe it's because I have kids. It's hard to get out, and I don't want to go driving around with other people. So, yeah, New Year's. I agree with you, Matt. I actually stopped enjoying New Year's when I stopped being able to stay up till midnight despite my best efforts. It just stopped. Rachel, and then... you'll get here when you get old. No, yeah. I'm a natural. <laughs> I'm a natural um night night owl. Owl. like so, these are my oh, peak yeah. times but I'm, I'm also not out like places I like just being at a house or something and and having everyone there and and I'm not a new year's resolution person I'm not mm, like yeah. it's time to set the revol- uh, resolution <laughs> revolution um I'm, time to set the resolutions I'm not about that Bring it I on. like setting like goals for myself, but it's not like if I don't do this in 2022, then my year is done or no, anything like that. Um, and I also, Michelle, you brought up seasons. I'm a Florida kid. I don't know what seasons are mm. other than hot. Mm-hmm. So, so I always really liked Halloween because of 
fall. What We don't have fall here. It was always raining on Halloween, and then New Year seems very wintry to me, and um, I, I think that's a cool part of it. Fourth of July is probably the one that I have recently, well, in the last couple of years, not followed as much because of the fireworks, because that in my community mm, has become a fair. scary thing. And I know with veteran communities, um, that mm-hmm. also can be kind of a triggering day also, but my best friend's birthday is on 4th of July. I love hot dogs, hamburgers. Like I like that daytime vibe of it. You can do the daytime, just not yes, the night. Yes. I, w- I would have to add, I'd clarify too for myself that <laughs> in all reality, since my son was born, I've yet to go to fireworks since then. So what I love about the 4th of July is probably a lot more what you're saying um, during the day mm-hmm. or like we did from the second floor of our house. We just watched That's the cool. fireworks we could see from our house. But um at a distance, you know, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's funny. Cause I'm like, no, okay. When he was born, I was giving birth. So I did not see fireworks. <laughs> then he was one year old. So we did not see fireworks. Then it was COVID. So we did not see fireworks. And then I guess his fourth birthday is this year. So we'll see what happens, but we have a one year old. So what holiday for you, <laughs> Michelle is one that you could give, get rid of or not celebrate or not enjoy. I love holidays though. Pick I, one. No, nah, I you know I don't I'm mm, Columbus Day. <laughs> All right, <laughs> everyone okay. in Ohio is sad Fair. for you. <laughs> we want to hear from you. Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. and from there you can email us, speechsciencepodcast at gmail dot com, and on there you can check out the merchandise, the Discord, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. On today's episode, Michelle sat down with Barbara Fernandez, author of You Got This Sis from Surviving to Thriving as a Minority SLP. We're also going to look at the invisible barriers to grad school, but first, let's jump in to our SS Pod shout out. It is your opportunity or our opportunity to shed light on somebody doing something awesome in the area of our field. And this goes to Kathy Hoffman. She is the state superintendent out in Arizona. She's also the SLP, uh, or she was also an SLP, I should say. And uh, her department have announced a $14 million grant giving teachers in Arizona $1,000 towards their donors choose uh, projects. Have any of y'all ever done a donors choose? No, I tried applying mm. um, during COVID. I know that they were everywhere, like to get to mm-hmm. like a, an additional de- um, monitor. That was a big one. But then I think it became, it became so popular that it was like, you were on a wait list for a year. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. But then you could sign up to do other ones. But I think it's a great idea in theory. You've done I, it, right, Matt? Yeah, I did it to get a iPad mini uh, eight years ago and it got funded and it is really cool. But there's also something really super aggravating about donors choose, which is going to your friends and random people and asking them to donate to pay for something for your classroom. I don't, I don't like that either. No, I, I have trouble. I don't mean to. Oh no, I was saying, I don't mean to sound like poo-pooing the idea. I just, that's the only thing I didn't like was like having to share it. And you're like, Hey, my district won't buy me an iPad to trial AAC devices. Right. Yeah. Like you shouldn't have the funds. It's too bad that you don't. And then you have to tell everyone else that you don't have. Actually guys, you donate five bucks. I just watched. Abbott Elementary. 
I just started, like I had been talking about a couple of weeks ago, I just started it the other mm-hmm. night. And one of the episodes was about, you know, crowdsourcing, getting these TikTok yeah. videos that went viral and getting stuff on their wish list. And they're in a, you know, a school that doesn't get funded properly. And they had to do these crazy things in order to get, you know, funding. It shouldn't be that way. I think it's a great option to have. But I also am one of the people that I I don't want to share it out to people like mm-hmm. that. I don't like asking people for help in that way, or I don't feel comfortable doing it. And I think it's something that I should be doing more often, but it is, I think some people don't do it because they have that hesitation for sure. Well, and I think and, in some ways though, putting that out there is a reminder to people who are not connected to the education world. Cause that's what we're talking about. Right. Um, to realize like, whoa, this stuff isn't funded. So they're seeking it elsewhere. I don't know. It's just, this is something that people who are not connected with education don't realize, or unless they have a child in that position in that classroom, then they might realize it too. But so many people don't know Mm -hmm. about those gaps in funding. Yeah, you're right. It sort of spreads awareness. I saw a cool reaction to this and they said that, because somebody had posted, like, of course, never read Facebook comments. Facebook comments are the worst. But they were talking about, like, why wasn't this just given to the districts to, like, fund? And they said that one of the nice things about this is that it's going directly into Arizona teachers' requests. So, like, a school district can't say, oh, we got $30,000 to give out, and we're going to give $21,000 of it to the science teacher and the rest of you were going to have a pizza party. So Matt, do you know if those are charitable donations that people could deduct from their taxes? Um, so like the way it were, wait, wait, like if someone donates to, yeah. Like if a family member donates, they could write that off. Yes. So like if somebody donates, like if you give money through donors choose, you can write that off on your taxes. That's a nice little incentive. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's our SS pod shout out to miss Kathy Hoffman, SLP doing the right thing. Uh, got to meet her at Asha in Orlando. So that was pretty cool too. So see SLPs in the government on the flip side, the SS pod due process is our opportunity to bring a topic to the, all of us to discuss and, come up with a consensus or differing opinions or leave you questioning uh, if we helped you at all. This week, I stole it out of a Facebook group because it is hitting a little bit close to home and I feel like everyone is doing it lately. What is academic adverse effect? So in schools, our IEPs, students are served if there is an adverse academic effect. It's very easy in some situations. A student is unable to follow multi-step directions. That's an adverse academic effect of following directions in the classroom. Uh, A student is unable to put together three and four and five word phrases to request and state answers. Super easy to identify the academic adverse effect. So how about this? Student, B or A average, does really well and they have an articulation disorder 
where is the academic adverse effect? Or Rachel, what do they call it down in Florida? We call it academic impact. Every IEP we yeah. have have, or I mean, we to provide service, we have to show that there is academic impact. Whatever they, if it's that's, a language, that's what I've heard it called too. Right. There has to be after. And when he was saying impact. adverse effects, I'm thinking more like uh, trauma from adverse childhood experiences Ooh. and everything. And I was like. That was a whole other topic I was about to go on. Um, but academic impact, I think, can be thankfully explained. Um, so if you're talking about a student with articulation concerns in the school, are they affected by it? You can say that socially he the student does not feel comfortable talking to peers, and that's present, preventing him from working in group settings. You can explain it. But then again, you do have students that are A's and B's or a straight A's and they're not showing it because, you know, their parents are helping them at home because they're struggling so much. So I've heard before teachers say, like, do not help your your children at home because we can't see what they actually are doing. But then you also are kind of having them fail in order to show the academic impact. So there is that great area with this, but that's mm -hmm. also part of our job as therapists is to, to help, whether it's the student helping make that decision or saying like, I really need help with this, or the family is saying, I feel like my child really needs help with this is for us to do that eval and talk to the staff and talk to the teachers and see, is there an academic impact? And that could include social isolation or lack of interaction with peers or not participating in the classroom and they could still be getting A's and B's. So I think there is potential that you have to kind of look at, to use the classic term, the whole child mm -hmm. and their whole academic situation to, to determine whether it's academic impact. It's not just A's and B's. Exactly. Yes. The social part of it is huge, especially if you're looking at a student with pragmatics. It's also, are they feeling the impact of it? Do they feel that they are struggling with social interactions and everything like that. Academic impact, like you're saying, is not just straight A's, A's and B's, anything like that to show success. So I will throw the curveball to everybody then. Of course. Student, <laughs> I know that that's my job here is to throw curveballs and let you all try to hit them out of the park. Student has, let's call it less than ideal pragmatic language ability. On standardized assessment, let's say they are in the 16th, 15th, 14th percentile, right there, right on the cusp of, of maybe, maybe not. And let's say that they are a middle to high school student. So we can say that they're allowed to make more input decisions in the therapy. They don't want to change. They don't want to come to therapy. I mean, we know there's an adverse academic effect of, of their pragmatic language. But if they don't show it, and I think that's where these questions kind of about the articulation start to happen, because we talk about rising caseloads. Mm -hmm. This is I why mean, I is that, the is that process, the kind of is that the kind of student that it is worth sitting mm -hmm. down with them, with the teachers, with the parents to have a discussion about it? Because that is they are old enough to be part of that team decision and to be part of how their services might look. So maybe their services don't look like weekly pullout sessions. Maybe it's check-in. Maybe you're giving them some worksheets. Maybe there's a way that you can support this student without having intensive IEP minutes. 
Absolutely. And in the high school setting, especially at my school, we had a lot of consultative services. And I'm learning now with my new role, elementary school consultative services have a way different, um, a different way of showing that they're necessary. In high school, when a student is able to advocate for themselves and say, I, I had students that had difficulty with fluency and they had been in speech their entire K through 12 career and they're in debate. They're successful with what they want to say. They don't have concerns about how their speech is, but their parent does because they're not where they hoped that they would be, but the student is. And I think that is where you have that team decision. This this student is saying they feel this way. The parent is saying this. The teachers are saying it's not affecting the student academically with whatever grades that they want. It's not preventing them from speaking to peers or anything like that. I think you absolutely have to make it a team decision. Marie, aren't you glad that you are so far removed from this part and get to hang out just with the adults? Well, this is really interesting, and I could see a potential connection. I mean, you do have to have buy-in to some degree with adult clients also, and they have a lot of say in what their goals are. And the focus of the therapy that I do is more I approach them based on their goals instead of bringing them the goals. And I wonder if that's sort of the shift that maybe happens after a child reaches that certain age is it's more collaborative. But I also wonder, you know, kids, even high school kids without a fully developed prefrontal cortex, can they really determine how X mm-hmm. disorder is going to affect them long term? And so that's yes. a challenge. So I would guess. that is the other part of it that I had students that came in, say, from middle school, that the eighth graders had decided that they were done with speech, that they were embarrassed to be with the babies and everything like that. So they were put on consultation before they met me in ninth grade. Well, then I send a letter to parents their first day of ninth grade, or I say, hey, come stop by my room when you get a chance. And they look at it and they're like, oh man, this, this room is cool. It's not babyish at all. Like there's kids just hanging out in here and they're talking. So putting them on consultation was actually a way to get them in the door. And then they said, you know what? I'm not super happy with how my R's are sounding as a 10th grader. And I'd like to be on direct service. This is a conversation I had with at least five students over their high school period because they were able to buy into it and treated like an adult versus their parents saying, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to be in speech until you graduate. And it's not really helping. They have to have the buy-in. I think you've hit it with that. And my experience was a little bit more on the, we had a lot of kids with articulation or with verbal language goals. But when you talked about middle and especially high school and some of our transition students in the school for the deaf in particular, you know, they, that academic impact was a different question because their whole school was in ASL. So accessing their curriculum was not an issue because they were deaf. But if they were someone who needed that verbal support or wanted, that's the key, wanted Mm -hmm. to work on verbal language, then that was a different story and what we could support them with and what they could target articulation wise. And also having some very realistic conversations and and with these high school students and young adults about what they want and do they want to use their voice? Do they want to use sign language? Do they want to use a combination? Mm -hmm. What jobs are they looking at going into and what are they going to need? So I know that that's a specific population, but 
it was one where we had to have a lot of those conversations about what kind of services you want. Because for example, I, okay, you have a cochlear implant, but you never wear it except for your 30 minutes, a couple times a week with me. <laughs> so let's talk about that. Is this appropriate for you? Do you need this? Is this part of your goals? Does this fit in with what your family wants? Does this fit with where you'll be in a few years? I know it's hard, but that's part of our job, right? Mm-hmm. And I think I think the hard part with adverse academic effect or academic impact is that there is no standardized assessment. And and I've talked about this on the show before where we as clinicians need to get better at our diagnostic triangle the dynamic assessment, the standardized assessment, and the clinical opinion. And I feel like that clinical opinion part is always the part that falls to the side because we don't trust ourselves or we don't want to have that argument because the argument is, well, research shows and no one wants to listen to that. So I think that's where it becomes difficult because there is no like, you know, is there a study or not a study, a, a standardized assessment that says this student fell into the fifth percentile and that's what we don't have. So. I agree with you, Matt. I think that's sort of where the creative piece of our, of our skill set comes in is to develop those goals that make sense for them. And that also still could qualify them for services that are meaningful language to mm-hmm. whoever the payer source is. But I have a question. Let's say that a child doesn't, his, the services aren't skilled for our tick, for example. Are they going to be able to get services elsewhere? If they're not through school? So Probably, most likely, yeah. mm, it depends because insurance. Uh, so I, I have an example in my extended family of someone who um, in high school, middle and high school, still could not do an R and an L articulation wise very well. And um, because that was, this, so because he was able to be academically successful, very bright individual, um, well beyond a lot of his peers, it was never something that was ever addressed or ever bothered him until high school. And so until probably late middle school or high school. And at that point, insurance was not going to cover it at all. Their insurance denied it all. So they paid out of pocket. This is extended family member, right? Paid out mm-hmm. of pocket for that service, a lot of money per session. And in reality, that's one of those things we've talked about before that they probably could have gone to like a private practice SLP and just paid a flat rate that was cheaper than what they were paying because it was denied by insurance, mm-hmm. which is just rough because insurance drives me crazy with that. But um, there, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think in a lot of cases when it's particularly when it's one sound, we know that R is produced a lot of different ways, but when it's one error, according to insurance, they're not going to cover that given the age of the young adult or the older child. Yeah, that makes sense. So there are other options out there. It's just that they might be more expensive and maybe not accessible to all families. Absolutely. Exactly. We want to hear from you. Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com and email speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. And I guess y'all have hooked us up back on the Instagram that we can get our Instagram. Uh, I don't even know what they're called. Comments. Man, I'm getting old. The SS pod shout out and SS wow, pod. Yes. Move aside, Take it away, Rachel. All right. So there- <laughs> <Boomer>. <laughs> we, we posted a story 
from a post that we had a nice little graphic saying today is our recording day. And if you want to send us a shout out or anything like that, you can type in the comments. If you wanted it private, you can let us know. Just say, hey, can you put this anonymously? But there's also on the story a little box that lets you type in the question right there. And they organize it nicely for us on the other side of the Instagram machine. Um, The other side of the Instagram machine. I like it. I'm the boomer and you called it the machine. Yes. So (laughs) yes, please reach out to us, whichever way on their speech science pod and let us know what you think from week to week. All right, y'all. When did you guys graduate uh, grad school? What year? I was 2013 officially, but I wasn't in grad school since 2010, 2011. 2016 for me. 2017. 2012. So think back. We're all still relatively new. How diverse and how many members of the BIPOC population, the Black, Indigenous people of and people of color, were part of your program? How many in your program were males? How many in your program were not the, and I hate to call it the cookie cutter, white female? Of the grad program? Of the grad program. So in my cohort alone, I don't know how your grad programs were structured, but we had a cohort. So my cohort started with 30 people. Um, There was not one male. Um, And we went six consecutive semesters together. I would say five of those women were people of color. Um, That's that's okay. Yes. Um, One sixth. Okay. Yeah. I don't know how that stands up to the national average. Like, uh, you know, I'm not a math person, but, or the average of SLPs. Did we say it's 6%? Um, I am looking that up. So after I know this ties right into the conversation I had with Barbara Fernandez, but from her book, our field is 91.5% white. Mm -hmm. And our field. White female? Just white. I think, yes. Okay. Yes. And um, that is only behind um, veterinarians, farmers, mining machine operators. Whoa. Oh, my gosh. Huh. Um, yeah, fascinating, right? That leads right into the, the interview Oscars here. Oscars are so white. SLPs are so white. Yep. Holy smokes. Yeah, yeah. My, my cohort was all... I would say zero for me if it's it's possible somebody maybe wouldn't self-identify as white, but everybody was white presenting or white passing. Right. We were, were there any black indigenous people or people of color, Michelle? Um, our international um, folks, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. International folks, yes. Um, and so then yeah, I was that, the only there, male. There were, so Matt was our only in the cohort, but then after you left for the second, because we were on two different tracks mm-hmm. program wise, um, we started in the same cohort and Matt was our only guy in the cohort, but there were three, um, non-white women in their cohort. And then I would say the year after you left, there was a, there were only two other males who came in the year after you, Matt, and one was a black male. And, and I think there was one person who was not white otherwise. So I ask you guys that because 
in the American Journal of Speech Language Pathology from February, uh, Thomas Kovacs brings up the article assessing barriers to graduate school admission from applicants from underrepresented populations and master levels uh, speech language pathology programs. And guess what, y'all? If you are not from the white cookie cutter uh, white middle class, white middle class, thank you. Your applications are most likely hitting some one of these random invisible barriers. And, and, you know, some of them they talk about where they said that applicants from underrepresented populations were more likely to submit a late or incomplete application. Group differences were found for GPAs and percentiles and such like that. Are we missing out on really good clinicians? And I think the answer is going to be yes, by trying to push the GPA farther higher, bring in the application deadlines earlier and earlier. But how do we fix this? And then how do we create a field, especially in grad school, where we're training clinicians to serve a diverse population, but the clinicians, they look around the table and it's not a very diverse table. Yeah, absolutely. And another interesting question might be, how many underrepresented students when you're undergrad versus master's program? Because according to mm-hmm. the, according to previous research, that proportion of students who identify as Black, Indigenous, or people of color drops by 27% between undergrad and master's Whoa. level. So even if they are in the undergrad, which I absolutely had people who wouldn't identify as white in my undergrad program, um, but when I went to grad school, there weren't any. Yeah, I can't wait till you all hear at least the interview and have a chance to read Barbara's book because I think this ties in so nicely with it. And now I just want to bring her on to talk to us a little bit more about her experience, which a lot of people will get to hear in the book. But um, gosh, it, it it does make you pause because it, to me, it immediately makes me think of representation because yes. so many people, mm-hmm. I remember Rachel's story talking about why did you become an SLP, right? Because yes. you were exposed to an SLP. And in a, in a positive light too. Yes. I'm going to throw that out there because a lot of times it's not for certain people or certain populations or it's a negative experience. So, um, or someone coming in and trying to, you know, fix their family or change how they do things or something like that. So, and until we can have that positive representation and exposure, just like we talk about needing Um, more representation in education in general, in the medical setting in general, which are two of the big areas we as SLPs work in, our, our field follows that sort of norm of lacking representation for a lot of people. Michelle, you hit the nail on the head with that because that's exactly where I was going with exposure because I think of how privileged I am that as soon as my brothers turned the age that it was like, hey, you should probably be looking into a speech pathologist. My mom, who was a teacher who was aware of a speech pathologist, knew the steps to get one in our house, get the evaluation. And I was able to see that. I benefited off of that because since that day, when I saw a speech pathologist in our house, I went around saying, I'm going to be that. I had so many opportunities leading up to, you know, saying what my major was going to be and then going into grad school. And 
I look back now at my cohort wishing that we had more of a diverse population in my cohort so we could get, you know, more representation, more exposure. Um, there, there's just endless benefits to having it. You know. Yeah, I hear what you're well, saying. Go no, go for it, Marie. I was going to say, and I, while I absolutely agree that early exposure is going to be helpful, this specific research was looking at people who wanted to be SLPs. Mm-hmm. They were applying to be SLPs. And the problem was that we were losing some of these people, low socioeconomic status, yes. first-generation college students, people who identify as people of color, between there. So it has to do with the application mm-hmm. process, specifically GPA, GRE, letter of rec, personal statement, and then those overall composite scores. Absolutely. And I also think being a field that has to do with grad school, that's another financial burden to ask of people that are all mm-hmm. m- may already have financial <laughs> issues going in. Um, I-, I know that there were some people in my cohort that did not need to take loans out. And I worked, an- I took out loans and I worked part-time during that time. And I can't imagine having a family during that time needing to care for. There are so many barriers within grad school. And just like you're saying with the specific study, Marie, um, it's the jump from bachelor's to grad school. The thing that I was going to bring up is that when you have a diverse population in your grad program, you allow people to ask questions and have uh, not theories, but have misconceptions shot down while the student is still learning. So that instead of having a area where, or or, uh, an environment where SLPs are taught, Hey, it's African-American dialect. And that is a hundred percent normal, no matter who the student is, that's how it should be. And we should eliminate, you know, whatever. And in reality, you know, there is a dialect, but it's based off of situation and setting. And I remember, uh, uh, Mrs. Wright, Michelle sitting down and saying, okay, so if that's the African-American at the end of our, she's our quote at the end. Mm -hmm. And she was like, okay, if that's the African-American dialect, so then what's the white male dialect? Mm. And you're like, um, uh, uh, I, I don't, I don't have an answer for that. And, but the default, but the default, right? Mm-hmm. But if you have a diverse set of students asking those questions or having given that information in grad school, but you're you right, create... Mrs. Wright challenged us on some of exactly. that, exactly. And she's exactly. a black woman in mm-hmm. a position, a teaching position at a university, and a speech language pathologist. And th- I mean, that's representation. Did you have to take a multicultural class during your grad school? Because I had a great one in undergrad. That was my last semester of undergrad in the speech program. And I took the same professor. He was the only one that taught it. And he was a black man. Um, And he unfortunately passed away a few years ago. Um, But I remember taking his classes and he would give us these like ethical dilemmas. And I, you know, the train is heading towards this one child or like this, this family, like, what do you do? And we would have these debates and everything. And the more diversity we have 
in included in those conversations, I think the better off we are. Everyone is, our field is. And, you know, I realized going to ASHA and I'm looking around and everyone looks like me. And that's not a good thing. Right. I think we, you know, there are some interesting potential changes that were brought up in the article. And there's even a school in my state that is considering changing changing the way that they do their application process. But I think that until then, we're going to have to do a lot of work on our own to sort of fill that gap. And I know that's something I didn't really have any classes that were focused on cultural diversity. I had to take a one-day Native American studies course, and um, that was it. So all of the work I've had to sort of do on my own. But again, we have to be motivated and dedicated to doing that. And the first step is sort of acknowledging that there is an issue and recognizing that it's in our field and then listening to other Black SLPs or other under people from other and underrepresented groups and taking those calls to action and doing something about it. So then here's my question, and I'm throwing the curveball and playing, playing the other side here for a moment. Do we, is the answer less rigorous entrance standards, however you determine that, or, yes. or, or more, more people in the program? I wouldn't say that. Which no. I guess kind of works together to be both because right now you're, you've got a field where you have, I think the year Michelle and I went to OU at Ohio University, I think I was told it was like 400 and something applicants for 23 positions or 24 positions. So you've got to find a way to weed that out. And yeah, okay, if you bring down the, the academic rigor or the rigor of the, the first cuts and you bring them in for interviews, but if you open that up and from 24 people to 48 people, you might be able to get in more SLPs that can then build the diversity as well that way. So is one better than the other? I don't know. And I guess that's just kind of my first knee reaction is we, can we do both? Is it one or the other? I don't know. Marie, you're shaking your head yes to the one. So (laughs) yeah, I think one of the challenges is reducing the amount of bias that's in inherently in some of these. Yes. So the, the GPA and the GRE have a lot of potential bias against the groups that we're talking about in this article, except those Mm -hmm. are the ones that are the objective data. And those are the ones that easily, you know, do the quote unquote weeding out is by looking at GPA and GPA and GRE count so strongly in the overall composite scores. And that's really all that the grad programs have to go off of when you have such a large pool, hundreds of applicants, you have to go off of something seemingly objective. But I think that the trap is that it's not actually objective. And what it's doing is and it's a systemic thing. And I think that it's going to start at the level of advocacy and at the at the graduate program level. And I think this was a nice study to show that it's happening in a lot of the programs. It looked at sure. 167 of them. So that's quite a few. There aren't, there weren't and a lot of- how many are there total? Do you, does anyone know in the US? Oh, I don't know. I'm going to look for it real quick because I'm curious. I'm going to say that the GRE for me d- didn't, the score that I got in that- did not in any way correlate with how I am as a clinician. Um, I don't think it does for anyone. I don't know anyone that, you know, got a high score on that and is the best clinician. Or I know some people that got a very, very low score 
and are great clinicians. Um, so I, I don't think that we should be using that in general as an indicator of who's meant for grad school. Um, I lost my train of thought on the other part of that. I remember okay. sitting in stats class and our stats mm -hmm. professor going over a statistical regression based on the applications and how they weight different things, which was fascinating. Over 300 schools in the U.S. say that they have a SLP grad school or undergrad program. Okay. So, and you said a hundred and something, right? A hundred and... We, we are a critical shortage field. So having more schools that are accredited um, that you know, we don't need to be pumping out SLPs, but I guess in a sense we do, we need, we need more available, but we don't need, you know, unqualified people to go. And I understand that we're debating here what the qualifications are for grad schools in, in, mm -hmm. we need more SLPs in particular regions and areas. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Not I more. I don't necessarily think we need well, more SLPs overall. It's hard to imagine a gr grad programs in certain areas expanding their programs because then mm -hmm. you have to have placements for all the students. Mm -hmm. And in some cities, they're already oversaturated. Exactly. So I think it's more a matter of finding ways to make sure that your your application process takes into account some of these biased measures. I don't have a good answer for that. I think that you know I can give an example. Um, it According to this study, UW-Eau Claire which is in my state, is considering dropping the GRE and replacing it with a case-based essay. Now, again, that would come with its own yeah. bias, potentially, mm -hmm. if someone isn't a really great writer or, you know, how does your writing reflect you as a student? I think that you can argue against a lot of these, and I just can't imagine a grad program do reading 400 essays. No. Um, I think that it's something that I'm glad they're doing research. We just, we have to come up with some solutions because mm -hmm. time is ticking. So one thought I had reading oh, sorry. through this really quick that I was going to share that you made me think of as well, Marie, was that what about, and this is just an idea and I'm not working at a grad program, but um, what about the recruiting process? There's not really a recruiting process because we get mm -hmm. so many applicants, but I almost feel like we need to have uh, programs seeking out because there are highly qualified people from diverse backgrounds who could fill those slots. So it's not the lack of qualified people in my mind. It's the lack of either exposure to know that this job is an option and this field is an option and um, the resources potentially to apply and attend grad school. So, you know, what are we doing to we, the Royal we, what are we doing <laughs> to, um, to recruit people well, from this a variety might sound radical. of I, he I fully agree. I mean, is there is there anything wrong with having a certain percentage of applicants needing to be from these underrepresented groups? I mean, I think that's been done historically in a lot of different fields, though. Like, right. I, I mean, it, so who knows? Can we like, do I mean, it? yeah. Why why aren't we doing it? Well, I know I don't know if any of you, when you applied for grad school, had an interview. I've spoken to some people that said that they had to interview and had to go, and I did not. And I was like, wow. I would have done great on an interview, I feel. I feel like that is where I would be able, rather than a GRE or anything, if I had an rather interview. Rather than the on paper, Rachel, yes. you could really, yeah. However, that is also another way that people can get discriminated against. And I've heard people, even my friends in my cohort that came from New Jersey, when they're, they're in a Florida school and they were saying, you know what? 
you don't talk the right way because their accent was so heavy. They are talking correctly. So I can see other underrepresented communities that are sitting in an interview and they say, you know what? They're not meant for speech. The higher ups that be, you know, in, in a grad school saying this person can't be a speech pathologist in Florida or here because they don't talk the right way. So it's another barrier that you have. I don't think that there's a this is a one going to tie right in with Barbara's interview. Great, great. I can't wait to hear. <laughs> I don't think that there is one set way to resolve it, and I, I hope that we do because I want to see more diversity. I think our students, our clients, need to see more diversity. Um, and I don't know the answers for it, but it needs to be done. We want to hear from you. Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. Email us your thoughts, speechsciencepodcast.gmail.com or hit us up on the socials. Michelle, you were talking about that interview. What are some of the things that stood out to you before we throw it to uh, you and Miss Fernandez? So Barbara and I connected through an author and SLP group on Facebook, and I really wanted to get her on our podcast to talk about this book because um, if you have a chance, I'm going to throw it out there. So one of my favorite things is that all of her, I'll start over, her book is now released as of March 8th. So yesterday when we're recording on the 9th, um, her book is in a lot of different formats. So you can get the audio book, which is her voice and a lot of the people that whose stories she also shared parts of, so other minority SLPs. Um, And of course the print copies, hard copy, and paperback. But if you get a chance to listen to any of the audiobook, even if you're reading along or you prefer that hardcover book, because I know I do a lot of times, uh, I would really encourage you to because it's different to hear it from her voice. It's such a narrative story. It's not just a turn the page and you get research and statistics kind of story. Um, She's sharing so much of her soul and herself in this book. And I hope that a lot of our listeners have a chance to read it. Great. That'll be coming up after the break. You're listening to Speech Science. And now for our regular research review, brought to you by the Informed SLP. The Informed SLP releases a monthly newsletter that brings you plain language reviews of only the newest, most clinically applicable research keeping you up to date on advances in the field and saving you tons of time. So let's get to it. Let's give them something to gestalt about. This is a review of multiple articles. Check out the written review for references. Gestalt language processing, or GLP, it is everywhere right now, and everyone is talking about it. Why is it so hot? We'll get into that. What even is this? We'll get to that too, no worries. But the big question that's been blowing up our email, DMs, and search engine, is there research behind GLP? Is it EBP? Quick answer, yes, uh, partially, it's complicated. So while we wish we could pull this off in a quick soundbite, you're gonna need to grab a chair or an earbud and settle in for the ride. Let's go. What is GLP and where did it come from? First, some definitions. It'll be painless, I promise. You get to speak German. Gestalt 
comes from the German word meaning form or shape. Within psychology, it refers to processing information, visual, auditory, linguistic, as a whole that's more than the sum of its parts. In language, a gestalt is a multi-word chunk that a speaker learns and uses as a whole before having knowledge or awareness of its internal structure. It may be defined by its prosody or intonation and have an idiosyncratic meaning related to a specific context where the person has encountered it. It may or may not be intelligible to the listener. You might have learned sentences in a foreign language as gestalts. Understanding the sense of the whole meaning within a context, but not the individual words and how they fit together. A person communicating with gestalts can also be described as using delayed echolalia, a more common term in the literature most often referenced to autistic people. Delayed here means the person is echoing an utterance after a gap of time and not immediately after hearing it. Scripting is sometimes used synonymously with echolalia, but can more specifically refer to the use of learned chunks of language as a consciously applied communication strategy. For example, memorized answers to interview questions or those classic small talk rituals. Scripts are not necessarily gestalts. Gestalt language processing was hypothesized and explored by the linguist Ann Peters in her 1983 book and taken up by SLP scientist Barry Prisant, who you may know from Uniquely Human and the CERTS model and colleagues. This work is several decades old, which is why you weren't finding Gestalt in TISLP's database until today. This is a model of language acquisition, where a child acquires gestalts as their initial units of language, which they can then learn to break down or mitigate later. You can think of this as the top-down route to developing productive grammar. Prisant theorized four fluid stages of gestalt language acquisition. Echolalia, mitigated echolalia, isolated words and beginning word combinations, and grammar. Thanks for listening to this review. If you're interested in more, come visit us at www.theinformedslp.com. Tell us how you put the research into practice, or find us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at The Informed SLP. We'll get back into the show in just a moment, but this episode of Speech Science is brought to you by Therapy Essentials, which includes Presence Learning Therapy Platform. It's so much more than your average video conferencing tool. It includes everything you need to securely and effectively deliver speech language therapy and assessments remotely. Michelle, the hardest part of teletherapy for me was always having a robust selection of therapy materials because everything I have is either 2D or the toys. So it's wonderful that Therapy Essentials has a content library full of customizable games and activities that I can personalize for my therapy sessions to keep my clients engaged. Plus, you also, Matt, have the ability to upload your own therapy content and materials. So when you have those things you've already made, you can use those too. 
plus a collaborative workspace with multiple camera views so you can see what your clients are doing and they can see what you are doing. And live in-person chat support that can keep you on track. Presence Learning Platform has everything you need to confidently build your teletherapy career. Michelle, if they want to learn more, where do they go? You can start your free trial today and learn more at presencelearning.com. Be sure to click on our platform at the top of the homepage. This is Michelle Wintering with the Speech Science Podcast, and I have the great opportunity today to sit down with um, a woman whose voice I've been listening to this week on her audiobook. So when we got hopped on the Zoom call, I, I told her, oh, I, I recognize your voice now. I feel like I know you. <laughs> so I'm excited to have you all hear from her. But her name is Barbara Fernandez, and she is an immigrant SLP from Brazil. Um, she lives in Texas, so we just connected on that since I'm now in central Texas. Um, she's only a couple hours away from me in Dallas, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I am so excited to have you here. I know that you have upcoming here on, in just a few days, the official hardcover release of your new book. Yeah, and on March 8th, which was the original plan day for International Women's Day, and it will be the release of the official release of the audiobook and the ebook, which is still not available for sale. Okay. And the title of her book is Sis, You Got This, From Surviving to Thriving as a Minority Speech-Language Pathologist. So um, I'm going to be asking you questions, Barbara, but I really want to hear your voice even more <laughs> since I've been, <laughs> I've had the fortune of listening to your voice with the audiobook. But um, tell me about your book. Uh, tell me about the upcoming launch and uh, take it away. All right. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. This is, this is really cool. I... Um, this book came out from, and I actually wrote this book. I started writing on November 21st. It was the second day of the ASHA convention last year. Uh -huh. The book was released. Uh, the paperback book was released on January 29th. It took me 28 days to write it. And it took me about 30 days from having the editors look over it and editing for and formatting the book. There was so much learning. I never in my life thought about writing a book. I am not a writer. You are now. Uh, I am. <laughs> and um, it's been exciting. It was, you know, I, I sent out an email to people subscribed to, to my blog talking about an accidental book release. And people go, how can you release a book accidentally? <laughs> um, uh, and do tell us, and we'll say it again at the end, but what is your blog in case anyone wants to look that up? So I've been blogging for maybe 13 years or so. And a lot of people still see me at an ASHA convention. They'll say, oh, are you Geek SLP? So I have this blog called Geek SLP. And, and for over a decade, I've been doing uh, videos about integration of uh, mobile technologies into our practice and uh, showing different apps, different technology, different tricks, all that relates to technology and speech therapy. So I do have a geekslp.com and you can also have fun laughing at me on YouTube with videos there that are 10 years old and talking <laughs> about technology that is 10 years old. It's really hilarious. 
<laughs> I'm sure it's grown and changed though with uh, with all the new technologies. So you were sounds like you were on the front end of really, um, you know, using the blogs and the social media to connect and teach people about about technology. Yeah, yeah. I, I that's something that I I think I I can say I'm good at. It's teaching the technology part. The writing is brand new to me. It was just just felt compelled to get my words out. I didn't even know if it was going to be a book when I start writing. I just opened pages and I started typing. It could have been a blog post and it became a book. Yeah. And I know you say you're not a writer, but you've been writing just in a, not a book format for that. That's for very true. Yes. Yeah. So you're, you're a writer. I think, I think that's an official title. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'll take that. Um, okay. So tell me about this accidental book launch. So I was at the assistive technology conference in January. I had just received the PDF book uh, formatted from the person who was formatting my book. Formatting is you like you send them your Word document. In my case, it was a Google Docs. I'm like, here's the Google Doc. And they go in and they select the font. They know which page, you know, if we need a blank page here, and then we start all these things, put in the page number, um, to make sure that everything kind of is formatted in a way that it looks really nice and organized. So I was super excited. I was eating lunch um, and I got it. I had put the ebook on pre-order for March 8th. And I went, okay, let me now put in my paperback for pre-order because I have the file. So I go thinking I'm putting on pre-order and I click the button and I'm like, wait, what happened here? Congratulations, your book is now live. <laughs> it was the end of the day. I was with some friends and I'm like, they're like, what are you doing, Barbara? I'm trying to call Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get this book. I don't want the book to be live right now. My goal was because once you push in the button to publish a book, you can order an author copy so you can hold the book and see what it looks like. Um, is this the feel you want? Do you want to edit? So I was hoping to have 30 days to do a whole marketing, create images, create promotional things. And there was a point when I was trying to get a hold of Amazon and they explained to me, okay, so you could take it off, but people can still buy for the next two days. And there was a whole other resubmission process. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to go with this. Um, but I was, I was freaking out. And I was not planning to come back home for another two or three days. I decided to change my ticket. I said, you know, I need to be home with my family for this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I booked a ticket, hopped on a plane and came home. I had other women who collaborated with me on this, 18 other women. And I'm on the plane texting them, guys, the book is live. And, you know, trying to even explain to people what happened. It was so fast, yeah. but yeah. And I just, so the paperback went live on uh, January 29th and the book hit, the paperback hit num number one best-selling speech pathology book within 24 hours. So that and, was pretty incredible. And the second launch is coming up very soon in just a couple of days. So um, I've had the chance to uh, listen to much of your book. And one thing I I love about your 
the style and the writing of your book is how narrative it is and how it's it's very storytelling and you took your story as well as pieces of other people's stories and and that's coming from me as a person who fits both the gender and the race of the vast majority of people just like you pointed out i think it was 91.5% of slps are white and so me reading this i i just want to learn more from you and i want to hear more about what what made you want to write this down to begin with and then now it now it is a book right so like I said, it's, I didn't plan on writing this book. I had two encounters and I talk about this in the second section of this book on how it was a series of events, two specific events, one extremely positive and one extremely negative on the same day of the first day of the ASHA convention. I had an occurrence with a Latina SLP who is a student and she, came to my booth from a recommendation that somebody to talk to. I've been talking about uh, my journey with my accent and being an immigrant in this field for a while. So I had little articles written about um, how my accent is perceived from my colleagues and how it was perceived from professors for some time, uh, but in short articles. And so when this girl was having issues, Somebody said, you should go meet with Barbara at her booth. And it was such a powerful moment for me to see myself in somebody else that, and me being in a position to support her. It was, there was a moment for me that in a high moment that 14 years later, somebody else is dealing with the same things I was dealing with 14 years ago. So things haven't really changed within our field in that aspect. And then at the night, I had another encounter with a faculty from the college I attended. And her behavior with me that night was the reason I went back to my hotel room and I said, you know, there, there is a lot of conversations that we need to be having. Um, but for me, most importantly, I know that there are women like me who need support right now. And I feel like I wanna give them hope to continue and to know that there are more people because it's really isolating. And I think there is such um, a power in us realizing that we are not alone. And this is what I wanted to do with this book is show uh, women in, that, that don't feel like they belong in awareness that there, even though there aren't very many, there are many of us, as many as there can be that have gone through this and we see them, we feel them, we've been there. And these are the things, you know, part of my book talks about surviving. And then we move on to thriving. How do you go from one to the other um, to make sure that these women can get to the thriving part, which I've been fortunate enough to get to. And how do you, I'm sure people can read more in the book, but tell me what, what makes it thriving for you at this point? How do you define that versus when you were in survival mode? One of the biggest things I think for me was the awareness that I don't have to be like anybody else moving and shifting that I don't have to blend in with them because I'm just going to fail blending in. I have to own and stand up as myself, sounding the way I sound, acting the way I do, 
and just being me and, and recognizing um, parts of my personality that I used to deem as weakness and recognizing my strengths. And I think this is a general message for all of us, right? Is once we recognize what we're good at and playing to the strength, to my strengths is what really, for me was a big uh, shift moment in my career was when I realized, you know what, I'm really good at technology. This is what I'm gonna do. I'm not good at crafting. I'm not gonna continue to try to get better at crafting. Because yeah. that's not going to work. It's okay if you don't have the uh, the perfectly colored matching flashcards handmade, right? right? Yep. <laughs> there you go. Um, one thing that really stood out to me was um, in your book, you specifically mentioned that looking back at your life so far, you your advice would be to take as many opportunities as you can. And um, for any of our listeners, what what do you want to tell them about that? You know, this is, um, this is something that I strongly believe in. And we often see, uh, you know, opportunities are part of hard work, right? Opportunities are just seeing the possibilities, but then working hard once you see that opportunity, not letting it pass. Uh, one cool thing that, that happened the other day, I was getting out of the gym. I went on Instagram. And one of my uh, collaborators, Abony Green, she's a speech pathologist. She has her own private practice in Arizona. She was doing a live and she was talking about how she ended up being in the book. I just met Abony in November and she had messaged me when I put out a call for somebody who, for anybody who wanted to collaborate on this book. And she, um, and I said, hey, Abony, do you want to contribute to my book? And she said, yes. When do you need this by? And she told me, I was expecting six months and 48 hours. Sit and write something 48 hours. So she's retelling this. And I, it was, I didn't know she was doing this. I just logged on and I saw that she was talking about her journey in getting in the book. And one thing that she said was, you know, I like being around people who get things done. And one thing that I told her, I'm like, Ebony, what I actually see is somebody who saw an opportunity to be part of something said, yes, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. You are busy. You have your own business. You have two clinics. You have a ton of things to do. But when I said, hey, do you want to join me and do this? You said, yes. When I told you 48 hours, you, you got it done. You managed to get it done, right? Um, and there was a lot of things that I imagine things are going to happen with connections with the other collaborators that we have on the book. Um, and, and so this goes to the opportunity. I've reached out to other people to be part of it. In, but in this book in particular, some people didn't have the mental capacity and emotional energy to be part of it because for them, some of the things I asked them to share are still really triggering and difficult emotionally, right? But whether this, this was a book on this subject or a book for AAC or a book for articulation and phonology, if somebody says, hey, do you want to do, do this with me? If you can, go for it. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you, you've provided an opportunity, I think, with your book and, and me listening to you about taking those opportunities um, to, for people to hear stories from people who might not be like them, if you look at the majority of our field, right? And so obviously I know these stories 
um, will speak differently to different people, mm-hmm. depending on your background and your experiences. But um, I, I, my undergrad, I took a different route to speech pathology. Some of our listeners know that where I did my undergrad in um, public relations, communication and psychology. So, but my undergrad research was on narratives and the importance of narratives. And then I worked for Dr. McCarthy as a, a grad assistant in grad school and he did some narrative research and what they found showing to help change perceptions for people. If you can't have that in-person interaction with someone with a disability, for example, that reading their writing and reading their story can also change perceptions. So ideal, yes, we want that in-person interaction with those people who are different from you. But if you can't get that, then the next best thing is being able to read their stories. And so I am excited for your book to be out there because I think it's giving people an opportunity to hear stories from people alike, like them or not. And Mm -hmm. it can shift their perspective and maybe open the door for opportunities to have that in-person connection. I love that you brought this up. Um, When I wrote this book, it was not meant for people for the 91%. Mm-hmm. It was meant for the minority women of this field. Yeah, the people you want to support. Yes, but what what's interesting, what happened that I was not expecting is it is initiating conversations like the ones we are having uh, and people are starting to um, wonder how would I respond to a certain scenario when this happened? What is, you know, a lot of the times lack of exposure leads people to not even knowing or being afraid of asking certain questions, of thinking about subjects, right? Um, the less, uh, I just came back from the Tisha convention, so it's the Texas Speech and Hearing Convention, just last weekend, somebody that is at a university level came by my booth and she had the paperback, uh, paperback copy, she brought me to sign, which is to me, it's a whole other world, even this whole idea yeah. of signing books, which is not something I even knew. I went, wait a minute, you want me to sign? What do I write? I wasn't even thinking your about that yet. Your first official author note in your book. I love it. <laughs> yes. But one cool thing that she approached me and she said, I told the faculty at my university, I needed everybody to open chapter 14 in the very least, read it, think about it. What would you do? If Barbara was our student, how would you respond? Because we are a 100% white faculty and we have had encounters with minority students and maybe they are the same place where Barbara was. And maybe this encounter could have been us. How are we going to handle it? How, how differently could we handle this to make sure these individuals are feel seen and heard? Um, and how can we make sure that the future students don't go through something, even if the, if our past cohort have gone through something? The fact that, that universities are starting to have these conversations, and I was completely oblivious of the possibilities here, is, is really rewarding for me. And it's a really cool thing to see happen. Uh, and then... I, I, I got emotional listening to parts of your book because I know that so much of this is, 
I mean, people are, you, you said in your book itself that people are going to know a whole lot about you after they read this book. Um, and if you really are putting your story, your SLP story out there, um, what's the, what's the biggest challenge with getting this book published? And then, um, what are you most excited about Mm. this publication? Um, I think one of the biggest challenge is not knowing what I was doing as I was doing it. I came back from Asha and I think three or four days in, I looked at my bookcase. I opened one of my favorite books and it's the alchemist. And I looked on Google, how many words does it have? 37,500. Okay. I'm going to write a book that thickness. So let's see. And I, I literally I, did this. I have that book on my bookshelf. <laughs> right? yeah. So I was like, okay, if I write 1500 words a day and I did the math, how long it would take me to get to those words. And as I was inviting people to contribute, they wanted to know more details. If I, you know, I message and I'm like, I don't know. They're like, when are you, how are you going to publish this? I'm like, I don't know yet. Are you going to go to a publisher? I don't know yet. Are what does it, what's in that? I don't know. So I kept giving them a bunch of, I don't knows. I'm so grateful that 18 people trusted me with their stories in the midst of me answering a bunch of, I don't know. <laughs> um, so going in the dark, trying to publish a book ended up being published with Smarty Years, my business and being available on Amazon. But it was a bunch of, you know, even learning that there is such a thing as a copy editor and a content editor. So I didn't even know this was a thing, right? Um, a copy editor is, some, I needed two copy editors as an immigrant. You can imagine some writing. There is a ton of grammatical errors. I realized that even from my culture, we tend to write page long paragraphs. It's a cultural linguistic thing. And from, for, I was so, you know, they had to go back and like, Barbara, split this, par- this paragraph in three, in three. Like, okay, let's see how I can do this. Editing was really hard coming back and ch- chopping down because to me it sounds choppy. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to also speak in those long phrases and you start being aware of your cultural linguistic influences as you're going through this process. Um, it was the most intensive process of self-awareness. You go through this and you become much more self-aware of a ton of things. So that was the, the hard thing. The most exciting thing is uh, the responses I've gotten for people who um, are minorities in this field. It's, I think I have enough emails that if I compiled all these emails, it's a book a second book Mm -hmm. just from the stories when people write to me in response to this book they don't write two sentences they write a long story about their journey and how they empathize and my story is this um they don't say thanks for writing your book they're they're connecting with you because you were so open with Mm -hmm. this book so that that is you know people feel I got a Facebook message yesterday. Somebody, you know, she ended with, thank you so much for making me feel seen. And um, that it has, it's also because I see these people, I feel them and I just want to go there and support them more, right? 
Um, but the, it is exciting just to see people feel encouraged to keep going, to keep doing and to see the changes and conversations that we might be having in connecting with people through the book. And is there anything else that I've missed? Cause I know that we could, we could keep talking and I, I could hear all your stories. I want to, <laughs> but I want so many other people to have the chance to, to, um, to listen to your words on the book, which is in your voice and the voices of the people that you collaborated with. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I did record an audiobook. The okay. I so I think for us to close, I would love to close on the topic of the audiobook. Yes, please. I my husband was the one who suggested you should do an audiobook. Um, since you've gone through this part, you know that one of the biggest things for me is I really dislike how I sound. I was led to start seeing my voice and my speech as something extremely negative, and I still do to this day. And when my husband suggested me doing an audiobook, I said, there was no way in the world that I'm going to do an audiobook. I'm going to, if I ever have to, I'll hire somebody to read it. And then my best friend was here and she goes, I would never read a book if it's not read by the author. Mm-hmm. And I said, hmm, okay. So I ordered some equipment on Amazon went to my closet and I said, let me give this a try. So I recorded the audiobook for my closet because they said hey, there's tons of clothes there. Nice buffer for the sound. Yep. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, you know, you probably heard me cry a ton already, right? And it's so hard to keep reading as you're crying because your eyes get watery. Uh-huh. And I'm looking down and I couldn't see the words. So sometimes I have to stop it and I pick back up. But I cry a lot as I'm reading this book. Sometimes if I'm sitting in the office and I pick up the book, I'm still crying, but the audiobook you hear me cry. Mm-hmm. But to me, the audiobook has a more uh, meaningful um, experience. Uh, there's a there's a bigger meaning there is also a process for healing in being okay, putting my voice and my speech out to SLPs to judge and hear. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really vulnerable thing for me, but I said, you know what, I'm going in and I'm going all in. So, and that, to that, hear uh, as, as a listener, to hear your voice, to hear your accent, to hear your collaborators, their voice and their accent, I think is, is a really important part of, of the story that you're telling. So thank you from me as a listener to, for sharing that. Um, I know, uh, there's a lot of stories in your book, but, um, one that, occurred a couple times with a few different people where their experience in CSD programs, including yours, was being told or taught indirectly or directly that an accent is a disorder. Mm-hmm. And that one, that one hit me hard um, because I, I was naive to that being taught to people and that that being your experience. So um, thank you for putting your voice out there. Like literally putting your voice out there, not just, not just telling your story, yeah. but, but literally putting your voice out there. Thank you. Thank you for listening, especially considering that you didn't have to, because it's, it's really nice to sit comfortably and not even hear sides of other people. It's really nice and comfortable because it is emotional, right? But I, I appreciate you. You really reading and listening to me and listening to the stories that I shared and that all the other SLPs have shared on this book. And 
So I want to give you a chance. Please share your website um, information about where they can find the book, audio, or hard copy. Yeah, so the book is available. Well, the paperback is already available. Okay. The ebook and the audiobook will be available on uh, March 8th, which is International Women's Day. And you can get it on Amazon Prime. It'd be nice. You can order one day and get the next day. Um, so and- this should become, when this episode airs um, later in March, uh, it will be live. You can get the book. <laughs> yes, you can already get the book on Amazon and you can get both audiobook, all of the, you know, audiobook. There is even a cool hardcover that I just received yesterday because it took 30 days for me to get my hardcover. That looks beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, in audiobook. So there is four formats now. There is okay. an audiobook, ebook, paperback, and hardcover. Okay. And those all are available all on Amazon. Amazon. Okay. Yes. And then what is your website? So I have a ton of website, but okay. you can connect with me on geekslp.com. I I have my specific business related website, but you can all get there. You can also, I think the best way if you want to connect with me is sending me a direct message on Instagram or Facebook, either through Geek Barbara, and that would be on Instagram and also Geek Barbara on Facebook. Okay, great. And then, um, so March 8th, Women's Day launch, be sure to check out the book. Uh, I can't wait to hear some other people's reaction to it and see where this book journey takes you. Because I think I'm, I'm curious to see where this will be in a couple of years. Um, I did want to ask for one last question before we close uh, the cover of your book, because I think it's a, it's a unique cover and I want people when they pull that up, tell us why, why the um, drawing and image on that cover. So the, there's a lot of meaning on this cover. So initially the duck is the duck has always been a personal thing. It's my company's Smart Ears logo. Um, but what you see depicted here is the, the percentage of SLPs who are uh, white and the only the solo uh, minority SLP in the front. That's, that's the representation. The same goes for the men. We have one male duck there because we have a small number of male guys. You also see him receiving a leadership award because they are overly represented in leadership positions and receiving a lot of our awards, even though they only represent 4% of our field, they are still getting a significant number of awards uh, and taking on leadership roles. Uh, it says, I'm a swan. It's the moment when the duck really discovers that she doesn't have to keep going from one place to the other. And she discovered that she is a swan, not just the duck. From surviving to thriving. Yes. <laughs> well, that's really beautiful. And I, um, I knew there had to be more meaning than I was picking up on too in that cover. But Barbara, thank you so much for taking time on this random Thursday uh, to sit down with me and for taking my, my offer to be on the podcast. I hope maybe we can have you back on another time as well. I'd love to come back and chat. I'm an SLP. We can keep talking. Oh yes, absolutely. And for our listeners, you're listening to Speech Science. And again, this is Michelle sitting down with Barbara Fernandez, the author of the new book just published and republished. And it's called (laughs) Sis, You Got This from Surviving to Thriving as a Minority Speech Language Pathologist. And you can find that in multiple formats on Amazon. Welcome back to Speech Science episode number 158. I'm Matt Hot, joined by Michelle Wintering. Hello again. 
Marie Severson. Hey. Rachel Archambault. Hiya. See, I went in reverse alphabetical order that time, y'all. All right. Here's our, our coming back question for you guys. Who has been the biggest, who has been, had the biggest impact on the person you are today that is not a family or friend? Who has had the biggest not impact on who you are that friend. is not a family member or you would classify them as a friend? Mr. Rogers. Could they have become a friend later? <laughs> no, do not classify them as a friend. Uh, gosh, I couldn't even. So random stranger, celebrity, a professor you only had once. Who has had the biggest impact on you, on who you are, that is not a family member and or friend? Can I go with Mr. Rogers? Yeah, you go with Mr. Rogers. That's a good one. All right. I'm He's still impacting Smith. my daily life with Daniel Tiger, with my children. <laughs> yeah, right. Fair enough. <laughs> I go with Kevin Smith because uh, him and his, everyone creates art and create art into the world and rising, bo- rising tides lift all boats. That's the reason we're here together. So I'll go with Kevin Smith. Okay. Michelle and Marie, someone that is not a family member or a friend who has had an impact on you. That is a tough question. We're going to be here all day. <laughs> I know. Gosh. Uh, Marie, do you have one yet? <laughs> no, these ones really stump me. These ones, I feel a hot uh, seat. I have to like think about them for a really long time to come up with an answer. I, Because so, the thing is, is the people that have mentored me, I've considered them friends. I'm trying to think of right. someone who maybe... And that's why I like that question. So it's not about somebody that has mentored you, but somebody that you might have watched from afar or that you've only had in one class. That So I have a story. I have a, a, a quick story. Um, I will say a, a person and a, an experience with this person. Uh, I apparently interacted with her years before. So fast forward to grad school-ish time, right? Or I think end of college. And I was visiting my grandfather before he had passed away when he was living in an assisted living. And a staff member in the, a young girl in the, um, not much younger than me, I don't know, she looked a few years younger than me, stopped me in the dining hall and said, Michelle. And she was like, I don't know if you remember me. I was like, I wish I did. I'm really sorry. And she said, um, she was a freshman in high school when I was a senior. So I never knew her name until that day. And her tag was sticking up on a uniform. We wore uniforms at our Catholic high Mm -hmm, school, right? mm -hmm. And I was passing by and I tucked it in and just told her like, hey, I just fixed your tag and like went about my day. That's it. That was our only interaction. And how many years later, this was eight years later, probably, she recognized me at this place. And it was in that moment that I had this like, aha, like, oh my gosh, something that I did that was a hundred percent insignificant in my day of tucking in somebody's tag could have that significant of an impact on someone that they would remember you. See, that's the idea of the question. Eight years. Yeah. Well, I just want to share it because you made me think of it. it. And eight years later that she would stop me and say, I have to tell you this. And, um, and so I, I don't know that, that I think has shaped me professionally and personally oh, because amazing. it makes me think of, okay, who are those people who I still remember and I know their name 
even though they'll right. never know my name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Wow. We, we do have more of an impact, I think, on people than we know sometimes. So I'm going to think on that, too, and come up with some good ones for next week. <laughs> Marie, we're all speech therapists. We know when someone is trying to answer with generalized statements and trying to not answer the question. I'm skirting the question. So all I can think of is speech therapy related. And yeah, that's fine. So I'm going to, can I pick two other speech therapists that aren't my friends, but have really yeah. shaped my practice? Yeah. The first one is Sarah Barr, who does honeycomb speech therapy. Mm-hmm. She absolutely helped, especially because I was a, a new therapist when she started promoting some of her evidence-based and person-centered care resources. It really was fundamental in developing my approach to therapy. So I'm a big fan and um, I've really appreciated her work and how that helped me. And then also um, Ianessa Humbert in terms of swallowing therapy and Mm -hmm. not being afraid to advocate for your patients and for what's right in terms of dysphagia. And she's just been a a huge idol of mine in terms of dysphagia. Yeah. So those are mine. Uh, Dr. Oh, hum- like Humbert that. was um, the keynote speaker at Flasha over the summer. Ooh. Very. She was prob- I mean, probably incredible. Incredible speaker. Concerned. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There we go. This part of the show is what we affectionately call What's Up with Asha? Or is it What's Up, Asha? Depends on, I guess, the setting and the What's situation. What's up, Asha? What's up, Asha? How you doing, Asha? <laughs> <laughs> and Asha has released what is going on in the February 2022 advocacy update. And Marie, you brought up a really good point. And I kind of want to springboard off of it when you were talking about it in the break. There yeah. is only so much that can be done at the national level. And having sat in the state association, I feel like a lot of the questions that come towards ASHA are actually stuff that we should be directing towards our state associations. So when we look at what's happening on the national level, we look at and we see telehealth extensions gaining momentum. We look at uh, the interstate compact. We look at music therapy licensures. Uh, We've seen uh, OTs being pushed into dysphagia and ASHA's reactions to that. Those are all what ASHA should be doing. But then we look at some of the stuff that is workload caseload stuff, and that's more of an association thing. So my what's up, Asha, is let's keep Asha in their lane because I do not want Asha rolling into my state telling me how to practice on state issues. But I love that they are, you know, trying to get the interstate compact into 50 states. I love that telehealth extension is gaining momentum because while COVID has sucked, COVID has also op- gave us an opportunity to do telehealth therapy with people that maybe we never would have been able to get out and worked with. It is that adult patient that doesn't have time for you to come at seven in the night or nine in the morning, but can totally zoom in or Google meet you from one to one forty-five to do a therapy session. Hmm. You're absolutely right, Matt. And I think that the relationship between ASHA's advocacy and your state association is bi-directional. So just as much as ASHA is working on that interstate compact, so is my state association. And supporting at the association level is so important to get those initiatives started. And then you're kind of coming at it from two directions. 
And Ash is working on lots of different things, telehealth extension, specifically with Medicare. I think that's a big one. Um, and they're also working on early de- early hearing detection and intervention funding. And both of those, you can act now to support those initiatives by just doing a quick little link on the ASHA advocacy page. It's very easy form fill. You just put in your state and they send an email right to your state representatives. That's awesome. Yeah, I emailed um, Senator Portman when my daughter was deaf or was born deaf and was like, hey, how come this all sucks from a insurance standpoint? And, you know, they gave them wonderful congressman issues. But now he is him and Maggie Hassan are working to draft a legislation for reauthorization for that. So that's awesome. See, I will pretend that my angry, incoherent four in the morning email to a senator had something to do with that. Let's go with that. (laughs) Every little thing counts. Every little thing counts. All right, let's wrap up this show. What are you guys doing this next week? Not therapy related. I will go first to give you a moment. It is spring break. I am done coaching for about a week and a half. So I'm going to take that week and a half to rest and rejuvenate. And then I got to host a all-star tournament for the Cincinnati area high school bowlers. And I have no idea if my children are on spring break at the same time as I am. So that will also determine what I am doing next week. So Marie, what are you doing in the next week? Not speech related. You weren't expecting him to call you first. Look at that. She's the farthest left. This is the most stressful part of the show, right? I I have written down. This is the I wrote down daylight. (laughs) Exactly. I wrote down daylight savings time. (laughs) I like that's the next like thing happening in my life that I have to prepare for, and I'm equally excited as I am dreading losing an hour of sleep. But that's like sort of my myopic. That's what's happening next in my Mm -hmm. life situation. But I have a very fun event coming up at the end of next week. I'm having a sisters weekend with my two sisters who each we all live in different cities and we're going to get together and do some fun things in milwaukee cool. Ooh. that's wonderful that's definitely worth looking mm-hmm. forward to see that's fun rachel i am going to a concert with my dad on saturday we're seeing graham nash from crosby stills nash young Oh, um, yeah. So I'm going to be the youngest person there, uh, about 40 years. <laughs> oh. No, it's good. Um, I'm excited to go to that concert. It's been a music-filled couple weeks for all of us. I just went to that concert last week, and um, it'll be a good, um, good weekend. I grew up knowing who Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young were, but then when I did my leveling courses at Kent State, like their song Ohio is Mm -hmm. like all over up there and that hit a whole lot more and I learned a whole lot more about that band when I was up there so I hope you enjoy uh, that Thank you Michelle Uh, Well so two two things I'm looking forward to well one just finished I know last week I told you all my dad was coming to visit so we had my dad here in Texas for a long weekend and we're very sad to see him go but it was wonderful to have him here speaking of time with dads just i'm happy you get to go to a concert rachel flatten his tires he flew here that's too long of a drive he's gotta he's gotta <laughs> drive to the airport but i drove him to the airport oh, okay yeah, don't do that 
um anyways i two things i'm looking forward to our local library is doing some more in-person events and they have this um big outdoor science experiment type event event this weekend so we're planning to go to that and then um i think i don't know if you all know this but i've i think i've mentioned before that i i like creative crafty things so my Mm -hmm. creative crafty outlet right now is doing some different sewing projects so i'm making some more headbands and some baby blankets for people who've had little ones and doing that this week that's so much fun on tiktok i saw a security camera footage of a little kid going outside he was a little kid he's probably like 12 or 13 and they caught him stabbing the parents tires so he wouldn't have to go to school they didn't know who was flattening their tires and they bought a ring camera to catch the vandal and it was their kid not wanting to go to school oh poor kid That's what that's what made me think of telling you to flatten your dad's tires so he can't leave. Gotcha. Yeah. TikTok. <laughs> oh man, our intro music tonight was "Please Listen Carefully" by Jazar. It's licensed under an attribution and share alike license. Our bump music was "County Fair Rock," copyrighted John Deku. Find his music at SoundCloud.com/slash/DirtDogMusic. The informed SLP was at the count by Broke for Free, licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. And the closing music playing right now is Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod. That is also licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. In the immortal words of Janice Wright, always be a willow. The oak looks strong until it is beaten down by a storm. The willow will bend and return to form. The oak will break. Four fellow willows, Rachel, Marie, Michelle, the absent Michael. I'm Matt. Until next week. So long, everybody. Bye-bye. Au revoir. Episode number 158 of the Speech Science Podcast was brought to you by Presence Learning. Rachel, do you know anyone that is ready to future-proof their career and get their teletherapy practice up and running today? I think I know a ton of people that would be interested in that. You can with Therapy Essentials by Presence Learning. For more information and to start your free trial, visit PresenceLearning.com and click on our platform at the top of the homepage. Speech Science is edited and produced by MWH Production. Please follow Speech Science on Twitter at SpeechSciencePC and like our page on Facebook. And rate and subscribe to our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts.